Before we get rolling, just a quick warning that this podcast does feature real uncensored conversations with real uncensored people, so some of the language may not be appreciated by all. Listener discretion is advised. Hello world, welcome back to Living to Write. I'm Brian Landwehr and I'm a writer, and maybe you are too, or you'd like to be, or you just like to learn about what, how, and why writers do what they do. In each episode, we talk with a noteworthy writer about their methods, achievements, challenges, and advice for other writers. And when I say we, I mean both me and my good buddy Bailey Patterson, who is also a writer, as well as our producer, Hola Bailey. Ahoy, Dobri Den, Brian. That means <laughs> hello in Czech, as you know, I'm getting ready to go over there this fall. So the Duolingo game is strong lately. Oh, yeah. And and do you just know like a few key phrases and words or do you do you actually speak a bit of it? What's your deal? Trohu, which means a little. Uh, Ooh. So, Ooh. yeah, I could probably work my way around a restaurant or asking somebody what their favorite color is. But once we start to get past stuff like that, um, you know. Oh, asking someone what their favorite color is. You wouldn't be trying to be charming to anyone you might meet along the way or anything like that. No, me? (laughs) Well, I'm excited about our guest for this episode, and I always am. But because of that, I want to talk a bit about how we get the great guests we get for the podcast I'm just some guy who likes to talk and happens to own this decent microphone, but Bailey is the guy who actually finds our guests and enables all this magic to happen. And you do a really great job at that, Bailey. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Brian. That's super sweet of you to say. Uh, I really enjoy producing and uh, yeah, it's been really great talking to all these uh, writers who have inspired uh, just not only my career, but uh, thousands of others. So uh I'm really excited for the uh, other guests that we have coming on the show. Well, uh, I bring all this up in part because Bailey is sitting there in a t-shirt that I don't Uh quite get, but I suspect it has something to do with our guest today. And Bailey, I've got to say, you seem maybe a little extra excited for this interview today. So I'm hoping maybe you can explain to everyone who we're talking with today and maybe your relationship with his work. No judgment in this question, but is it maybe fair to call you a bit of a fanboy, maybe? Yes, I feel like I'm being called out like a 12-year-old going to a Justin Bieber concert because I have my (laughs) merch ready and everything. Yeah, um, that is safe to say. Definitely a fanboy um, of our guest and the TV show. Um, For our listeners at home, I'm wearing a green Boy Meets World uh, Harley Kiner t-shirt. He played one of the bullies on the show. Um, I'm wearing a t-shirt of a bully, but he was a cool bully, if that makes sense. Uh, he was a bully with the heart of gold? There you go, yes. He, 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 he bullied for other reasons, not because he wanted to uh, beat up kids for their lunch money. So the bully with the heart of gold, there you go, you said it right. Um, 
But like most of us growing up, we sort of all have those TV shows that just mean a lot to us. Uh, it doesn't matter continuity airs. It doesn't matter how many other people think it's cheesy. You will always defend it. And that TV show for myself was Boy Meets World. It, it was like comfort food to me, you know. Um, I would throw on Boy Meets World and I would just be lost in it for hours and hours. And I could just really connect to the characters, you know, growing up ages 12 to 17, that was my show and it was so relatable, but it was also so funny. And I wanted to be like Corey, the main character so bad. I wanted to have a a girlfriend like he did. And so just all the characters I could really relate to. And even to this day, I don't, you know, watch it a ton, but you know, if I'm having a bad day or something, I will maybe throw on Boy Meets World, and if not Boy Meets World, then I'll throw on Titanic. So we have that, but we're not talking to James Cameron today. We are we are talking to uh, Mark Blutman, who was a prolific voice in the series Boy Meets World. Um, he was the producer, he was the showrunner, and he was the writer on the show for, I believe, five seasons. Mark is a Emmy Award winning writer for... Uh, his work on the Apple TV series Ghost Writer. He's had a prolific career in television writing, uh, like Boy Meets World. Uh, he also did the spinoff series Girl Meets World, which I'm not too familiar with. I was sort of out of that age by the time that show went on. But Mark's work on family shows has created such a legacy and that still impacts you know, young viewers and writers like myself today. He's passionate about paving the way for the next generation of filmmakers, and he's very, very active in terms of the ongoing WGA strike and just inspiring to pre-WGA members like myself and you. So I'm very excited to uh, get him in here. Well, I am too. So uh, let's do that now that we've uh, learned a little more about what makes Bailey tick. Let's, uh, let's get Mark in here. <laughs> to learn how and why he writes what he writes, and maybe we'll even get Bailey's t-shirt signed. Everyone, please welcome writer, actor, and WGA member, Mark Bulletman. Lights, camera, action. Hey, Bailey. Hey, Brian. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you? Good, good, good. This is, uh, this is our Canadian uh, get-together? Well, <laughs> half. I, I am I am horrified to reveal that I'm an American, but um, oh, okay. but <laughs> but uh, yes, Bailey's Canadian through and through. I think that's safe to say. Yes, Calgary, Alberta. Nice. I, I, yep, I yep. think back in the day when I did stand up in the '80s, I think I played Red Deer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, pretty pretty sure I did. Um, trying to think, and I know Lake Louise is beautiful. One of the nicest places. Yeah, yeah, Banff and Lake Louise, yeah. And we have the uh, Calgary Flames. I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but... Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Montreal, so... So there you go. You're a Canadians fan, then, I'm assuming? Uh, used to be. I'm actually a, a Vegas Golden Knight fan. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I, I well, I've, a, I've promised, uh, I promised uh, Brian here place, I'm not uh, going to fan out for, you know, 30 minutes of Boy Meets World. And uh -huh. as much as I want to, I even got my, you know, Harley shirt on. And, oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, um, I just talked to him the other day, I, I guess, uh, to raise money for uh, the entertainment community fund. Uh, 
uh, a writer, Kit Boss, has like WGA garage sale type thing. And so we're giving away a, um, uh, I'll watch an episode of the highest bidders choosing um, of either Boy or Girl Meets World. And then Danny is going to come on with me and kind of say hi and all that. Danny's an incredible guy. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, I, that I really is great. I yeah. really enjoyed hearing his episode on on Pod Meets World. It was great to hear him speak out because, as a fan of the show, and when he left in season uh, three, uh, it was kind of sort of unexpected for us fans, and you didn't weren't really sure why. So it was great yeah. to hear uh, his was, side of it and stuff. It was it was unexpected for us. You know? Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, certainly um, it was a different time, and we didn't have you know, the knowledge, awareness, and uh, understanding and, and, and tools to handle, you know, mental health uh, issues the way we do now. And so we didn't mm. know what was going on with the poor guy. We had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's dive right in then. Hey, shall we, Brian? That sounds uh, terrific. Um, awesome. Mark, you, you mentioned um, your um, stand up uh, earlier in your career, and I know you did some acting, or at least on a handful of series, and then you moved from there to writing. Uh, why and and how did you um, get started with writing from where you were? Well, the answer of uh, the why of it is pretty simple. Have you ever seen my work? <laughs> um, I, I've seen a bit. I've seen a bit. You know. The truth of the matter was um, I'd book stuff and see what I did and sometimes was horrified at, like, people don't want to watch this, like what I was doing. And there was, you know, a specific point in time where I was cast as one of the leads of a movie called Meatballs 3 with Patrick Dempsey. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to the premiere with my brother. And uh, there I was up on the big screen and days before convinced I was going to be the next Bill Murray and maybe I'd be Robin Williams. Or I was going to be Meatballs 3. How can I not be a huge comedy star? And I rented a tuxedo with a yellow bow tie, a yellow cummerbund and yellow tacky converse with my tuxedo. I, I just... I looked horrible. Like if you looked at the entire cast at the premiere and say, Hey, who's not going to be acting in uh, the next couple of years, people would have pointed <laughs> guy in the yellow cons, yellow bow tie and yellow cummerbund. Um, and the movie came on and I was like, you know, right from the beginning, I was in one of the first scenes and I started slinking down in my chair and I kept, talking on screen and kept sinking lower and lower till basically I was almost on the sticky floor. And I looked up at my brother and I said, how bad am I? And he said, you're not good. Oof. You're not good. Oof. I was Oof. like, no, I'm not. And then I was cast uh, on all my children, big successful soap opera. And I was cast as Ernie Jackson, the assistant assistant editor of the Pine Valley Daily Bolton. I was supposed to have a six month run. This character was supposed to be part of the whole Greg and Jenny and Skidoo mysterious death accident. And, and after my first episode, I said, all right, where's my call sheet for tomorrow? And they said, there's been a change. No, <laughs> after one, after one, it only took me one. 
And, and so, you know, there, there's one of the greatest tools we have, not just in show business, but in any business in life is self-awareness. And I, I had a pretty good arsenal of self-awareness and I knew I wasn't fooling anybody with my my well, acting. That's great that you have the self-awareness, but just because you're an actor and you're getting booked and you don't feel like it's going to go anywhere or not going to go where you want, that doesn't mean you can necessarily pivot to writing. Um, you, most people aren't also writers secretly on the side. So how did you make that happen and and why did you want to do it and how did you figure you could do it well i i have a very facile mind very fast you know my sense of humor was always there um and even before i started acting um i had a buddy in montreal where i grew up in montreal canada and i had a buddy and i used to go to his house every saturday night to watch saturday night live back in the late 70s Original cast, Gilda Randner, Jane Curtin, Chevy, Bill Murray, Belushi, Aykroyd, um, you know, Garrett Morris, just these incredible people. And the writing staff was incredible, too. And it was new and it was counterculture, uh, topical comedy. And we'd get together every Saturday night and watch. And about three months uh, after about three months of doing this, we said, hey, let's write some sketches. So we wrote some sketches ah, and then, you know, it's 1977, you know, the next logical step when you write the sketches is, well, you mail them to Lauren Michaels. Why not? Why not? So we took the sketches, put it in a brown envelope, mailed it to Lauren Michaels. And about, I don't know, four or five weeks later, I'm home from school one afternoon and my buddy Stephen calls me up and says, come over. And I said, well, what's up? He says, no, no, come over. And I said, all right. And I got on my bike and drove two, three blocks and I walk in, I go, what up? And he goes, guess who I just got off the phone with. And I'm like, dude, stop. No. And he goes, Lauren Michaels. I'm like, Lauren called? Said, yeah. I go, so what's the story? What's up? And he's like, he wants to bring us to New York to meet Franken and Davis, their head writers. Wow. So we did. And, you know, we were like 16, 17 years old, had giant afros, horrible acne, squeaky voices, (laughs) and uh, really tight Jordache jeans. And fry boots. That was our look. And uh, we show up and go up, you know, in 30 Rock and we knock on the door and they were on the ground, like plugging lamps in and getting their stuff ready for pre-production to start. And they look up and Al Franken just looked at us with our giant afros and horrible acne. And as I said, tight Jordache jeans and fry boot. <laughs> he just said, oh, you guys are kids. And we went, yeah. He goes, but your resume, let us believe you were professional writers under comedy. It said Second City. 
you didn't work for Second City, did you? I said, no, I, I just, under comedy, I was listing things I liked and found. Oh, food. my God. So I put that. And need, <laughs> needless to say, uh, we did get the job. They were super nice to us. We talked for about an hour. Um, and then, you know, went back to Montreal. And then we were in school back then in Canada. I don't know what it's like in Alberta, uh, Bailey, but back then, and you know, they, they had what's called CJEP. It's like a junior college before you go to university. I ended up going to McGill, okay. full of miracles. But me and my buddy Stephen went to a school called Vanier. Uh, and we decided we have all this material we wrote. First day of school, we saw a sign up uh, near the admin office that said, hey, if you have a club or an idea for a club, come present it to student council. So we thought, oh, let's there's a drama club, but there's no like let's like let's do Saturday Night Live in our school. Call it Vanier Live. Hmm. And we had the material. And so we go and pitch. And the next thing I know, <laughs> idiots gave us thirty five hundred dollars. Wow. And our own office. No what? Way. That's fantastic. So. We're in school and, you know, lunchtime, everyone's in the cafeteria and, you know, girl will come up and go, hey, Mark, why don't you sit at our table? I'm like, why don't you come sit in my office? (laughs) (laughs) What? That's right. I have an office. And then I would waive $3,500 cash. Obviously. You got to have the prop. You got to have the prop. So we put on the show and uh, it was a huge success. Uh, we auditioned people, you know, a lot of kids from the drama uh, class. And and it, ironically, our best actor uh, went on. He's a huge producer uh, in Hollywood named Arthur Smith. He, he runs his own company, Arthur Smith Productions. He does Hell's Kitchen, uh, Ninja Warriors, all these amazing shows. And he, he was, he was our best. And uh so, you know, that was like, I mean, that was it. Like, I knew that I can write. And then I started doing stand-up. And I was doing the stand-up and the acting thing concurrently. And my act was probably 80% improv. You know, I had a character called Crusher Comic. I created a, a wrestler that came, I came out in a mask. So nobody knew who I was and wrestling tights. And big, long Ric Flair style robes. I came out to Eye of the Tiger and I'd pound people in the front row and then give them airplane spins. So, <laughs> but half my act was just improv. So I had a very fast, facile mind. And so when I finally, you know, in 89, 90, decided that I would, uh, and I was doing fine in stand up, like the Crusher comic, he was headlining clubs all over the States and Canada a little bit. But, you know, I'd go out on the road two weeks every month, make money, come back, pay my bills and my rent and go out on auditions. Um, but I again, that self-awareness thing, I knew something was missing and I knew I can write. And uh, lo and behold, um, I had an idea that I dreamed one night, literally dreamed a movie idea. And one of my closest friends at the time, um, ex-Canadian, uh, well, not an ex-Canadian, just left Canada, but he's still, uh, mm. it's Howie Mandel from Toronto, and we've known each other forever. And he was doing a movie called Little Monsters with Fred Savage. 
And we were talking on the phone. I said, I woke up with this movie idea. And he said, what is it? And I told him the idea. It's a movie called 10 Wishes about a 30-year-old who's trying to get his life in order and, you know, be serious and go after the fiance finally and, you know, get serious with her and get married and get, you know, take advantage of his talent at work and stop being a goofball. You know, back in the day, this is 90. And, you know, so it was for like a young Tom Hanks who played that kind of character or Jim Carrey or someone like that. And uh, I tell Howie the story. So it's basically about a guy who all through saving a baby at the beginning of the movie, all the birthday wishes he made as a kid start coming true as an adult. Oh, oh wow. So that's, that's yeah, a great, so yeah, great yeah. concept. So, mm-hmm. you know, he goes with a client to a baseball game and he disappears and ends up on the field hitting a game winning home run. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, all these different things happen and he doesn't quite understand what's going on. And then there's a knock at the door. And this is kind of based on my own relationship with my grandfather, who was like my best friend. There's a knock at the door. He opens the door and it's his grandpa who had died when he was 12 years old. So his grandpa's come back to life. So the two of them bond and have fun and relive, you know, the, the, the times that they missed. And, and then there's one wish left and uh, he can't remember what it was. And it flashes back to his 14th birthday party and him and his brother were in a big fight and the mother's getting all frustrated and she comes out with the cake, plops the cake down and says, just make a wish and blow at your damn candles. He looks up at his brother, looks down at the cake, just blows him out, cuts back to the present. Oh my gosh, I wish my brother was dead. So with all these wishes coming true every 24 hours, him and his grandfather have to save the brother's life. So that was kind of what I dreamed. I tell Howie, wow. on the phone, he says, I'll call you back in a half hour. He calls me back with the producers of Little Monsters, uh, Andy Licht and Jeff uh, Mueller. And how he says, tell them the story. I tell them the story and they bought it. And so uh, they had a deal at Fox. They paid me to write it. And then Fox bought it and then uh, never got made. And then it went to Disney and Paramount and back to Fox. And it's been 30 plus years and I will make it one day. Like it's one of those ideas that I will make it. Um, But that was the first thing I wrote. It got me into the guild. Um, And, uh, you know, TV came calling pretty quick and, you know, started writing TV. Still do movies a little bit here and there. And I, I have a couple now. And I have one I wrote that I'm supposed to direct. It was supposed to start filming next week. Obviously, that's not happening. Right. For, you know, numerous reasons, obviously. And we could talk about the strike a little later. But um, Oh, yes, please. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's kind of where the writing came from. I always had this vivid imagination. I always had uh, a very fast mind from my stand-up days, being on stage and doing, you know, audience stuff. Like, you know, where are you from? What's your name? What do you do for a living? Ba ba ba. Oh, hey. Bah. And it's just a lot of banter. And I love that stuff. And so I was always strong with dialogue and, you know, in writers' rooms, strong with, you know, lines that if we ever got stuck and character says so and so, okay, what's so and so going to say? There's Blutman with a line, you know. So, mm-hmm. well, you said you were strong with dialogue. That one thing I've noticed is that I really tend to enjoy um dialogue that's been written by people with comedy backgrounds 
because they know what conversation actually sounds like. It's, it's, you have to get that right often in comedy to sell what you're doing. Sometimes it's as a bit of a misdirect and sometimes it's just the point of the thing, but it really gets to me to read dialogue that just makes me want to say to the screen. And sometimes when it's just my wife and I, she probably gets tired of me saying to the screen said no one ever. When I hear that dialogue, that's just, (laughs) it's clunky. Said no one ever. I, I hate that when I read that kind of stuff, I'm like, you know, I was quoted somewhere saying once uh, that the best television, of course, I'm not the only one that said this, but it's it's the second part is what I said, but it doesn't feel written. It feels like life recorded. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I like that. And that's how I always try and approach my television. And 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 certainly now I'm I've been writing uh, a lot more dramatic stuff and heavier stuff and channeling a lot of relationship stuff from my own growing up, uh, my parents and all that stuff. And uh, you know, I think it's the same in acting. You know, Jim Carrey, Robin, you know, Hanks, like these incredible comic actors are also like the best dramatic actors. And I think it's the same with writing. I think a really good comedy writer will undoubtedly be, if he opens up that box, a really good drama writer as well. And that was one of the things I I loved about Boy Meets World is because they did such a brilliant job of balancing the comedy and the drama. You would have these episodes where, you know, there was the goofy episodes and things like that, but there was always the heart of it, you know, and deep down the core of it was always so yeah, impactful and meaningful. And, you know, I, I think I have to say, uh, you wrote some, if not some of the most mem- memorable episodes uh, of that show. I mean, you wrote the most, what, memorable line. They want you to take the roles. <laughs> they want you to take the role, <laughs> you know, so. You know, uh, it's funny that, First of all, to back up the truck for yeah. just a second, I was taught by Michael Jacobs. I'll give him credit for this. At a very young age in comedy, Michael taught those of us in the room and said, anybody can make an audience laugh, you know, and to varying degrees. But if you make your audience feel, they will come back. And they may not know why they're coming back. They may not be you know, self-aware enough, deep enough to know what's going on inside to articulate it, but they'll come back because they're feeling. People love to feel. And so that's, yeah, that's what we did on Boy. I mean, we wanted to make the audience feel. We wanted to make them laugh. There was a mix, you know, there was broad episodes, certainly, you know, and classic, you know, happy days, hijinks and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, you were going to feel something. And that's why, I have never seen a family show that has resonated in perpetuity with audiences the way Boy Meets World has. I get people coming up to me all the time going, oh my gosh, I just watched it with my kids, you know, and this is 30 Mm. years later. It's amazing. It still resonates deeply or you're the reason I became a writer or, um, what you said, which I'm so flattered, is that, you know, I was responsible. Certainly, I worked on all the episodes, as we all do. 
but you know, the years I was running the show and um, proud to say that a lot of those really um, memorable episodes, I had a strong hand in and I'm flattered and humbled. And, and I don't, you know, I don't personally uh, know you, but there's times when I'm watching an episode and I can say, I think this was a Bloodman episode, you know, and, and without even reading it, you, you can tell, right? And, and you know, yeah. maybe Podbeats World has helped with that a little bit, listening to them and getting a better understanding of how all the behind the scenes works, but you can yeah, definitely feel Yeah, it's like with this. Yeah. I mean, 20 minutes in, I, I know this is a Bailey Bryan podcast. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just know. Yeah. 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 When sure. you've got it, you've got it. There's no doubt. That's, yeah. No doubt. Uh, so you do... Uh, a lot of writing, obviously. What does your process look like? How do you get all this done? You were fortunate enough to sell an idea in the beginning. That's not an opportunity that comes around very often. It certainly um, doesn't come around nowadays the way it did. You know, yeah. part of the ever-changing landscape of our business is it, it, it's it's not conducive to original ideas. No, it likes existing IP quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And you know, my answer to that is right. Everything no. that come, everything that comes out of my brain, out of my head, out of my creative orbit is IP. It's my IP. It's my intellectual property. I, right. yeah. I love that. And I might borrow that if you don't object. I, that, I, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. You'll wait till I'm dead, but of course. Yeah. <laughs> So what 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 does your process look like? How do you get the work done? Lots of writers have ideas. They struggle to realize their ideas. Yeah. So obviously, it's, you know, there's two answers to this conversation, certainly. There's how do I get the work done when I'm on staff or running a show and I'm on deadlines and I have to churn out, you know, 22 episodes in a season. And that's, you know, one thing. But if I'm just writing something for me, uh, which probably will relate to most of the audience because most of the audience are young writers waiting for that break. And absolutely and the thing, um, you know, I will say that I can always share what I do. I can always share my process. I can share tricks and little things I do, but ultimately it may not work for you, you or you. I mean, sure. You know, so the generalities of, of writing are, if you're a writer, then commit to being a writer. If you're a writer, there really is no such thing as writer's block. That's a freaking cliche as far as I'm concerned. There are good days, there are bad days, Yeah, but there's no day where you shouldn't be able to write something. Right. Wasn't feeling it. I shut my computer. I went to the movies. Oh, man. If you're a writer, it's your job. And by the way, writing is the only job that you can do all day long without being paid. I can't go up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I read a few books. I think I may be able to do some open heart surgery. Is that cool? Like, I'm not a pro yet, but can I? They're like, what are you talking? No, you can't cut me open and, you know, fix a block valve no but writing you can do every day and when i first started dedicating myself to writing it was i treated like a job at nine o'clock i was in front of the computer and then i 
took a break for lunch and I wrote a couple of more hours and I did it every day. And so it was my job. And so I think anybody's process needs to be committing, committing to the craft. And, and now I understand you may have a job. You know, I was fortunate I was acting in stand-up. So that, you know, helped in the beginning. Um, but, I, you know, that back to that writer's block thing, I just don't think it's real. Like, I, I, I mean, I get it, but then there are tricks. You know, for me, sometimes um, if I'm having trouble in a scene, I'll go, okay, what's this scene about? It's it's about uh, losing uh, a girl to my best friend, let's say, right? And I'll go look up songs from the 70s with that subject. I'll just listen to a bunch of songs, you know, Boston, Journey, you know, Queen, whoever from, from like that era. And, and you'll all of a sudden I'm listening to his music and I'll, I'll get an idea. There'll be a lyric about something that happened in the kitchen. Now I got a scene. Oh my gosh, I can put my character. So that's just something I do. I'll, I won't walk away from the computer. And, and, and so then the other part of my process, which a lot of people do is, I, I hate the expression vomit trap. People say, well, you got to do a vomit trap. Just get it out there. No, that's like saying, you know what? Just build the house. Don't even put the nails in. Just build the house and then go back and put the nail. No, you can't build a house unless you build that house. And so for me, I want every draft. So my, my first drafts are tight as all get out because when I turn the computer on every day, no matter where I am, I could be on page 95. I go to page one. Hmm. Rewriting every day. So my my first drafts are super, super tight. Um, I like I, I just I hate that expression, vomit draft. Again, if these things work for other people, that's okay too. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of guessing since you don't like the vomit draft concept that you are not an outliner. You are sitting down and crafting as each page goes by, or are you sketching it out first? A bit of both. So again, television, if it's a series, I got to know what I'm doing. Like I, you know, we break the story. uh, We outline it. We start with a beat sheet, then an outline, all that stuff. When I'm writing a feature, I generally outline the first act. Then I go on a journey with my characters. Sometimes I take my characters places. Sometimes they take me places. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they take me somewhere. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? There's like a, an alley. There's like nowhere to go. And I'll turn around and say, now listen to me. And then I'll go somewhere else. And then I generally know the ending. But the middle is, you know, free form. And I would suspect there's a lot of painters that, you know, at some point they kind of have an idea and then in the middle, maybe they just go rogue. Um, you know, I think it, it, writing and, and painting to me is very similar. Our canvas is a blank page. Our colors are the words we type. Um, but I'll, I will outline the first act because the first act is is pretty 
you know, damn important. Yeah, a bit of a tight wire act going on there, uh, no definitely. No doubt. Uh, so uh, you mentioned the differences between when you're working on a feature and being in a writer's room. Uh, how recently have you been in a writer's room? Was that for Ghostwriter for Apple TV or has there been yeah, more Ghost, since Ghost, then? Ghostwriter, uh, which uh, I guess we did uh, 2018, 2019, something like that. Um, small room. We had 26 episodes, six writers. Well, that was my question was wow. how much had writer's room changed by that point? <laughs> I've been on shows back in the day with 18 writers. Wow. Uh, there were six of us and, wow. uh, we got it done. Um, I think part of why we were able to get it done is because the set was in a different country. We wrote in LA and we shot in Toronto, so there was, uh, you know, no daily interruptions. And then we would send uh, myself down or another senior, you know, producer, writer to go cover the set in Toronto. Uh, but it was difficult. And I, you know, I, I definitely place incredible value on uh, appropriate numbered staffs, um, you know, the AMPTP now likes to say, well, we're not paying to train the next generation of showrunners. Let them learn. No, well, we're not, it's not just the training. They actually add value to the show. <laughs> you know, I mean, you talk about, you know, Bailey, you mentioned me and my Boy Meets World history of some of the most like my first year on Boy Meets World, my first year, five episodes, five. And I was like a low level writer you know, but I was good and they saw that. And so, you know, um, I think that any level writer has the potential to bring an incredible, incredible amount of value to the staff. Did you come in and, on season two? Yeah. 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 So we actually turned down season one. I saw the pilot and thought it was too young, even though I love Bill Daniels and used to hang out at St. Elsewhere all the time. Um, you know, how he was Dr. Wayne Fiscus. So I was on set almost every day watching Bill Daniels and now I have a chance to do a show with him. And I felt it was too young. Then they called us back in season two and said, we're going to age it up. And there was another showrunner, showrunner there, David Kendall, who I clicked with in the meeting. I'm still good friends with him today. Um, and he had done growing pains before. And, you know, so the idea was we were going to have the kids skip two grades and, um, you know, mm. go, junior high and then bring in Harley, Frankie and Joey and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, mm -hmm. I love it. Um, but I don't think I, did I answer your question about the being in the, the room and stuff? The, uh, yeah. The, well, you, you sort of beat me to the second part of my question, which was, was, was great because I was imagining that the rooms had changed quite a bit uh, by that time. Um, and I know from other guests we've talked to that, the the mini rooms and all that are uh, an incredible yeah. struggle so, now. Yeah, I mean, certainly those who, you know, follow me on Twitter know I have no filter. I've been doing this long enough that I can be the voice of myself and yes. be the voice of all these young writers that have things they want to say but can't for fear of repercussion. Um, the agents failed us and we failed us and everybody failed us. Even as a union, we failed a little bit with the mini rooms as we didn't really see what was going on. We knew it was wrong. We knew mm. it was taxing on the creators. But what was going on is those 
motherfuckers, it was their initial experiment to see what can we do without a staff. It's the first step getting rid of a staff. Let's 10 weeks and then boom. Now, those young writers that got fired after 10 weeks and never made it to set and never got to see their episodes produced and never got to be part of post-production and sweetening and all the elements of post, they never got to participate in that. Well, now they want that to be AI. So that was the first step and let's make the writer's room obsolete. And we didn't see it. We didn't see it coming. It, is AI the biggest sticking point between the AMPTP and the WGA right now? So for me, it was. For me, it was always. And I was quoted in many interviews and on several podcasts before we even struck. So it's not about the residuals. It's hmm. not about a cost of living bump. It is an existential crisis right now in that they don't value us as artists. They don't look at us like the great artists who put art on the walls of museums or who write the songs that live with generation after generation. They don't look at us that way, but we are that. And so for me, it was always about, you have a bunch of people now running television. There's two factions in the AMPTP. There's the legacy companies, and even they have changed. A guy like Bob Iger, who I used to think was terrific and artist-friendly and carrying on the Disney legacy, said some horrible things when he was interviewed outside the gates of billionaire summer camp. <laughs> that was awful, yeah. Lear jets off to the side, just out of frame. It was horrible. We're unrealistic because we want the career, the occupation, the vocation of writer to still be here in 10, 15, 20 years. That makes us unrealistic. So for me, it was never about the residuals. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, sure. They mess around with the numbers. Okay. I have between boy and girl, I have 30 written buys uh episodes that air on Disney Plus. Now that they're on Disney Plus, I make a tenth of what I used to make. The reason? They own the show. Because they own the show, they assign the license fee to it. Uh, the open market value, if Boy Meets World, which is still a huge title, which is still an attractive you know, uh, title to advertise for subscribers, um, it would be about 200000 on the open market. Disney assigned a license fee of $40,000. So I'm getting a percentage of 40,000, 1.2% of 40,000 for every episode I wrote every three years instead of 200,000. Wow. No, I'm no, I'm no expert on the history of this, but w once upon a time, oh, way, way back now, the uh, studios owned the theaters and our government took it upon themselves to break up that monopoly. Um, I'm not sure in this climate a monopoly can be broken up, but... Um, it sounds like that's part of the problem is just some of these stacks are stacked way too deep. Well, well, here's the thing, Brian. First of all, the AMPTP is so archaic and flawed in concept. You've got seven or eight entities who are competitors. They don't like each other. They want to destroy each other. 
Well, we have to get them to agree on what we want when they all have a different motive. I think they need to be, you know, broken up. I don't know if it'll happen, but it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. I completely agree. It doesn't make it's sense. Like, imagine, imagine if, you know, I was getting divorced and I was going to go to mediation and the mediator was my ex's new husband. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. an apt comparison. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not going to work out. No. Or in this case, you know, you know, some of them work together, some don't, some, you know, but they're definitely at cross purposes. It, it, it doesn't make sense. The other problem with, with them now is they don't love film and TV. The people we used to negotiate with who ran the studios, they loved the business. Right. They loved making television. They loved making films. Bob Evans, who ran Paramount, made The Godfather, Chinatown, you know, Love Story, all these incredible movies. He loved it. These guys don't care. Yeah. Loving having content is not the same thing as loving storytelling. How can people run a business that they don't love? AMPTP and the WGA are headed back to the table on Friday. Is that well, the theory? Yes. Um, we don't know the nature of Friday. We don't know if it's going to be, hey, just wanted to see your faces and let you know we still hate you. Goodbye. Or it's going to be, we really want to get a deal done. Here are the areas you need to go back and consider. Like, I have no idea. Nobody knows. And, and that's the great um mystery of social media is reading all the people who really know mm -hmm. when nobody knows we don't know you know yeah you see all these things all over or i do all over i guess what x now not twitter <laughs> huh? yeah <I> know. <laughs> my goodness but you see some people saying oh it'll last till september or it'll last this date and this date and really i just was kind of thinking to myself i don't think anybody really knows do quite knows oh, do listen they? I know it's going to probably last till the end of this week, mm -hmm. at least. I'm fairly certain I can say that. But I've also been doing this long enough to know, no, we don't know. And the great thing about our union is we don't uh, communicate in half-truths. At the end of the day, writers are among the most intelligent humans that walk this earth. So we've got heart. We've got passion. We've got ideas. We can see the future. At least type it out on screen. I don't know if this is a uh, naive question or not, but what is the mood like on the uh, picket lines right now? Fantastic. I got to tell you, this one is different than the last strike or the strike before the strike before. I wasn't in the before and before. I was in the last one. Uh, I've been in the guild since 90, so I missed 87. But the reason this one is so different is, first of all, we have, you know, there's 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 an incredible community. They call themselves pre-WGA, and I mentor a lot of yep. them. There you go. And you guys are fantastic. And you're taking this as serious as you need to, because the reality is we are out on the line really 
fighting for you. Yeah. I've got my pension. I'm going to be 65 in two years. I've done 350 half hours of TV, tons of pilots, movies. I'm fine. If we leave the business on the path it's on now, you're done. You're not going to have a career. You're not going to have a house. And you're certainly not going to have a pension. Well, we're not ready to walk away from this business we love until we make sure that you guys are going to have all that because there were people that did it for us. So specifically to answer your question, Brian, there's this wonderful group that are out there on the picket lines with us who appreciate us. We appreciate them. The resolve is without any question, 100% driven to get the deal we want. Nobody is backing down and it's been hot out there. And we got an infusion of energy from SAG-AFTRA. Quite frankly, it was nice. Finally, not just seeing cut off Wrangler jean shorts, but Lululemon. I was very excited. <laughs> the infusion of Lululemon in, on the picket line was, was heartwarming, if nothing else. Um, we don't, again, it's also a little different because this, I used to, you know, Jeff Katzenberg and Bob Evans and all these people we struck against before, we still knew they valued us and 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 they respected us. And they were fans of the art and writers. These guys don't, right? Mm -hmm. These guys, we go on strike. Zaslav goes off to Boston University, does his commencement thing, gets booed off the stage. Four days later, launches HBO as max and all the credits are removed and it all the writers and, and directors are under you know creators with everybody else like everything then he tries to get rid of turner classic movies and he was about to do that till he had to come to jesus with spielberg spielberg scorsese and and anderson who said you can't be doing that like these guys are tone deaf to the community to art and by the way, they're wrong about everything they say. You know, two years ago when the theaters were empty because of the pandemic, they said this is the end of the theater era anyway. Everything's going to be OD. People want to sit on their couch and watch on demand. It's over. Well, the box office the last two, three weeks has been pretty damn strong. They're wrong. What do people want? Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Not 25 tights and capes movies in the summer. Yeah, I mean, the first thing Barbie hits, Mattel announces their new slate, just listed eight of their toys. I know. Oh, do you still not understand how the business works? And so back to answer your question about the picket lines and this and that, for the first time, we have a strike with actual. And as writers, we know there's protagonists and antagonists. Well, we've got the villains this time have faces, all older white guys. Like there's not a woman or a minority in there. Yeah. Like these are the same people that said, hey, we got to change up the writer's rooms. We got to get diversity in there. We got to, you know, and then after George Floyd, it was all about optics. Da, 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 da. But did they ever once look in the mirror and see themselves as, you know, 10 white men? Mm -hmm. Like they're such hypocrites. Like we need to take part of the business away from them. And, and if we have to, we will. They don't give us what we want. You said that the 
AI was the biggest issue to you. What do you imagine is going to be the stickiest thing between the parties when they're back at the table? Do you think AI is going to be the biggest sticking point overall, or is it going to be residuals? Um, no, I think residuals will work themselves out, okay. you know, um, I, because there have been like in the last couple of years, for instance, Bird, Bird Box, I think, was the name of the movie, the Sandra Bullock thing on Netflix. Yeah, I think yeah. got our 45 million Netflix had a cough up in unpaid residuals, 45 million. Oof. We'll always get what's due us. Give it to us now or give it to us later. Our guild is really good and they have a really good legal team. So we'll get the residuals when we'll get the bumps and we'll get them to be transparent. Well, as a pre-WGA member, um, I've taken it very seriously as someone who wa wants to join the guild and, and followed uh, all of the guidelines that you guys have been saying, because I just, I believe in the guild so much and I know what it, does for writers and what it provides for writers and you know like i was before the strike i was querying all the time i had my mentor you know he was sending out scripts to producers for me and things like that and you know when the strike halted uh i didn't want any of that um you know i've been writing my spec script stills for myself uh you know i still write we're writers i don't think you should uh, take the pencils down but Everything that I possibly can do, like we've made T-shirts and donated it to the fund, uh, our own right. strike shirts and everything. Uh, I've changed, you know, my social media stuff to iSand and Solidarity. So oh. anything that you can do as a pre-W, and I've seen people before, like, have given that pre-WGA kind of a heart, like, you know, you're not in the WGA, like, why are you do like, you know, I don't, I, 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 I haven't seen it necessarily i've heard of it and it's mm -hmm. uh so wrong i want people yeah. out on the lines with us and and i want and anybody who puts pen to paper is a writer and mm -hmm. you know i never i know even in our business some people get offended with different terms like when i started i was called a baby writer it didn't bother me like i don't yeah. care i'm a writer mm -hmm. you know and and but uh, no, I want pre-WGA out there with us and because you truly are the next generation. Like we don't take in people who are already members. Like that's not a thing. We take yeah. in people who were pre who are now in and because they qualified. And so no young writer is less of a writer than any other writer. Brian and I share a mutual mentor, Jeff Arch, the writer of Sleepless sure. in Seattle. And uh, he, one of the first sort of sessions we had with him, he said, all right, how many people here are, are uh, aspiring are aspiring writers? Oh, and everybody yeah. raised their hand. And he said, okay, well, that stops today. You're a writer. Exactly. And ever since then, it's sort of been built in our minds. So I really appreciate what you say and, and what you do for all of us members who, who want to join. I know Brian, he, he also is uh, a writer that won't as an intention of joining the guild one day. Awesome. So you Absolutely. know, when you think about it, there are 11,600 WGA members. Wow. It's not a lot when you think about it. No, I mean, mm -hmm. no, really not. There's 160,000 SAG-AFTRA members. There's 150,000 DGA members, which includes assistant directors and, you know, stage directors, et cetera, et cetera. There's 11,600 of us. 
That's that's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to get into that union and to have the power of that union and to have the love and appreciation. We did on Friday, I want to say it was Friday, um, at Amazon, we did a showrunner picket, you know, basically people who've run shows and creators and this and that. And at one point, I was just doing a loop and the gathered were responsible for billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars generated for these guys, you know. But how do you get their attention when Bezos is really in the, you know, deliver books and vitamins and uh, socks business every day? Or, you know, Apple, really, it's about phones and tablets and computers. So it's hard to get their attention. And the last thing they really care about, which is why, you know, the whole concept of binging is a flawed concept. Mm -hmm. You know, appointment television is everything. Let it breathe. Let the characters breathe. Let there be six, seven days of conversation. Um, You know, I loved Ozark. I watched the first three seasons. I didn't watch the last season. Too much time elapsed. I forgot what happened. And quite frankly, I didn't care as much. Mm, yeah. He was one of my favorite characters in all the television. But to wait a year? So flawed. But all they care about is splash, splash, one, two, three episodes, new subs, new subs, on to the next. Yeah. Brian, sorry. you. Were... Oh, no, I just say I would like to... In the current day and age, I would think that there would be a little more appreciation of the value of appointment television, because if you wait a week between episodes, that gives things a chance to churn online and go viral and generate memes. So, good Lord, why not give that breathing room for what used to be the water cooler talk and is now the meme-based communication on Twitter, I mean X, and all the other services, why not? Um, it, it's maddening. But again... See, what I would do, yeah. what I would do is I would, even on streaming, I would go appointment television. Yeah. Then, I'd after the final episode, I'd wait two weeks, maybe three weeks. Then I'd pull it completely. Pull it. Then I'd drop it again a year later. And watch what happens. Mm. You know, um, I would just do things different than they do it. Yeah, because I don't think it's worked, and I, 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 I think creatively, a lot of the shows have suffered uh, because you know I'm watching shows, I'm watching episode four, and I go, well, back in my day, that would have been a finale. Yeah, you know, they're just they're pushing everything to the front and trying to make it sexy and splashy. And uh, you're not getting the chance to really know the characters, you know? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Succession just got lucky. <laughs> no, you're, definite, you're definitely right. I mean, that's how I fell in love with Boy Meets World. I saw it on the second leg because I'm 25. So uh, I didn't obviously catch it on TGIF and stuff. I caught it later on the Disney Channel. But what they did is it was, and I think they only had three seasons on DVD at that time or something like that. But what happened was, is I would get so excited to watch next week's episode because I wasn't being fed all of, 
I'm not saying I wouldn't have liked the show as much as I did if I was being fed at all, but I got excited to hang out with Corey and Sean and Topanga and Eric every week because I had something to look forward to. I didn't just wasn't being fed all the content, you know. I, you know, again, they took something that has been working pretty well. And boy, you got to be really dumb to break show business. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a toy that's been around forever. And to break it, they broke it. They broke the business. And uh, we'll see what happens. You know, earnings are due next week for a lot of them and, or the week after. And we'll see what happens. But I'm curious. I'm curious to see what happens Friday. Um, you know, I'm curious to see how much longer I had four things that were in various stages of going that I want to get back to work. And I, you know, I want to finish my next few years strong and then uh, maybe retire in Montreal. Lovely. Where the poutine is the best. There's a, there's a showrunner, Rene Belsay, uh, who, who's French Canadian. Um, and I, I think he did a lot of the hour procedurals. He sent the poutine truck out to almost every, Every studio. Oh, wow. He's awesome. It, you yeah. know, listen, the, 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 the Corps d'Esprit for uh, our Canadians ha has been through the roof and, and, and the theme pickets and, you know, just everything and the vibe and the, you know, meeting people. It's also a chance to meet people whose work you're familiar with, but have never met. And it's a chance to get acquainted with them. And I've made, a few really incredible relationships, uh, you know, make, made them happen in, in real life. One of the things they don't understand, but that's okay, I do, is besides the benefits we'll end up with, you know, from the strike, more money, more respect, more this, more that, you know, more security, better career sustenance. It's a reminder. Bringing us all together reminds us that artists should basically live metaphorically within an artist's community. It's yes. The beginning of time. And we stray away from that because we get busy. And one person's at a studio in Culver, another person's in the valley, and you go home and you're tired and you got your wife and kids or, you know, whatever. And uh, you forget that we need to lean on each other. We need to inspire each other. And so coming out of these strikes, we're stronger, creatively stronger. And the ideas and art that will be born from these three weeks of not working will be gifted to the audiences. And uh, I look forward to seeing what we all create. Me too. I do well, as so. as well. Yeah, very well put. I, I hope things go smoothly on Friday and put things on some sort of rails. I look forward to you uh, being able to get back to your projects and have a very strong next few years. Uh, and I really, really appreciate your time. I know you've been very busy with the strike lately. So thank you, Mark, for spending so much time with us today. That was great. I, I appreciate it. I think our audience is, uh, really going to appreciate hearing what you've had to say about writing, but also doubly, especially uh, about the, the industry and uh, what people can hopefully look forward to and what they can do to support the WGA's efforts. Now, I find it inspirational. Certainly uh, for your listeners, yeah. you know, right. There's a, uh, 
you know, a huge garage sale, W garage sale. Uh, there's an item uh, with myself where the highest bid uh, gets to do a watch along with me and a special guest of either a Boy Meets World or a Girl Meets World. Um, but there's some incredible Simpsons stuff and Seinfeld stuff and show jackets and all the money goes uh, to a life uh, at a life in the arts on X or Twitter. Uh, but that's the entertainment community fund. And even if you don't want to bid on an item and you just want to go to that website, five bucks, 10 bucks, like anything helps. But that's a great way if you're in another city and can't be out on the picket lines with us. Um, you know, Entertainment Community Fund is a great, great organization that uh, takes care of those affected by the work stoppages. And it's not just writers, it's crew. It could be a person with a small restaurant that it's yeah. now. It's just people in general affected by the strike. We'll be sure to uh, put that in the show notes uh, for the episode because that would be uh, wonderful to share. Thank you so much for your time today and, 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 and being here on the Living to Write podcast. We really appreciate it. And, and for everything that you do for pre-WGA members like Brian and myself, you know, just keeping that encouragement out there and just, uh, you know, for letting sure. us know it's, it's possible. So, yeah. And for everything the episodes of, of your shows have done for young people Absolutely. and families along the way. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And for all your time today, <laughs> we know you're a busy guy. I hope Friday goes well for you. And I, I hope for us, uh, for, us. for us, Brian, us, us. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Us, us, for right. Us. Not an aspiring writer. I'm You're a writer. writer. Right. There right, you go. Right. Got it. Thank you, Mark. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Well, that was great. And this is now a bit of a science fiction episode, maybe, because there's a little time travel involved. And by that, I mean our interview with Mark was now several days ago, but we've decided to hop in and record this fresh closing segment at the last minute, which gives us a chance to discuss the current state of the WGA strike. Greetings, beings. That's my best uh, alien voice, Brian. I can't do any better. Oh, that's good. That's your contribution to science fiction. Thanks. I'm so glad we didn't rehearse that. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed our time chatting with Mark and particularly appreciated his time because I know he's been spending plenty of his time on the front lines supporting the WGA recently. Uh, before we get to that, do you feel like your chance to talk with him about Boy Meets World was everything you'd hoped? You know, it was, but as being a super fan, you can never have enough time. And I felt like I could go on three or four hours talking to Mark just about the damn show. And I didn't want to fanboy out too much. So um, I'm oh, happy that we got a little bit of Boy Meets World in there. <laughs> you didn't want to fanboy too much. Well, I'll just pat you on the back and say that you accomplished that goal. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Uh, maybe a bit of a rant or a screed or something on my part here regarding the WGA strike. It looks like that first meeting between the WGA and the AMPTP that came up uh, during our chat with Mark didn't end up amounting to much, but it was still a step in the right direction. And I mean, it's better than not meeting or so you'd hope. 
And since then, talks have continued, and there's now, I guess, a specific counterproposal from the AMPTP. And uh, disclaimer, I'm not an expert on the WGA, nor the AMPTP, or the issues involved here, but I do grasp the fundamentals, and I do like to talk. And I've got to say that what the AMPTP is offering just feels like a little bit of a pat on the head to me. And maybe it's all better than it looks, but it seems to me that once upon a time before streaming was a big thing, as a writer, you got paid okay money to write for a show and you were motivated to make what you were writing great, not just because you had a passion for doing it, but also because if it was a hit and it went into syndication or was sold into other markets or what have you, you got paid residuals for that also. And these days, with the new way writers' rooms are being handled, it isn't just fewer writers doing more work for less money, but the writers in that room may even be writing for a show that hasn't been greenlit, so it may never even go into production. So ignoring the pride in your craft aspect of it, whether it even gets made, isn't really that big of an issue, because no matter how big of a hit the series may turn out to be, writers generally no longer stand to make residuals going forward. So to fix that, the WGA is asking for residuals based on popularity. The more viewers the show gets, the more money writers stand to make off their efforts, which I think resembles how things were before streaming. So that sounds to me like a win-win situation, right? Because it provides extra motivation for the writers to make the things they create amazing instead of simply hoping they can get staffed in enough rooms this year to make rent. But as I understand it regarding the counterproposal from the AMPTP, they came back with, well, we'll tell you what, we will start letting your writers know how popular their shows turn out to be. That is, they'll share the numbers, but we won't actually start rewarding them for it, even if we are making a fortune off what they created. <sighs> well, all right, assuming I have all that straight, it sounds kind of perverse to me. We had a model that worked for everyone. Now streaming has disrupted the model because streaming works differently, which is fine. Disruption happens and it can often be a good thing. But from my perspective, the WGA isn't raising their hand saying, hey, we want to get rich too. They're just saying, hey, can we please make things more like they were? And the answer from the AMPTP at this point appears to be no, but we'll offer you something that sounds a little like that. Uh, so this has me concerned and kind of frustrated on behalf of the WGA. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Brian. I'm it's it's a very frustrating situation. And I I get it that if you're big business, you like to hold on to the money you've got. That's how you get to be big business. But they have to wonder if they're not shooting themselves in the foot and if the imagined promise of what AI is going to do to revolutionize things is leaving them thinking that they don't need the writers as badly as they do. And I have to stop myself from 
spiraling off on that inflection point because we could have to tack another hour or two onto the end of the show here if I go into talking about AI again. Um, but y yeah, the situation, the situation overall, um, sticky. And to be fair, it can still all change at any moment because negotiations, the, the process of negotiations is itself sort of intrinsically perverse, I think. I mean, when you, when you go to buy a used car, if you're good at it, there's some theater involved, some posturing on both sides. But in this case, I don't feel like the AMPTP is making themselves look particularly great. But then again, that's kind of why the industry needs the WGA, because the AMPTP has so much power that they don't really need to worry about silly little things like whether they're making themselves look great. Uh, okay. And end of rant, end of rant. Hopefully we'll have better industry news by the time the next episode rolls around. And if it turns out I had any of the above wrong, I'll own up to it and we can talk about it then. Yeah, that, that sounds great. And, you know, even if you are wrong, which I'm sure you're not, but, you know, we're always <laughs> learning and that's, that's what life's all about, right? So uh, thank you to Mark for all he does, including his effort for the WGA program for emerging writers, uh, which I believe the hashtag on X, X, everyone. Oh, X, not, yes. Not Twitter. Uh, we don't even know what Twitter is. Yes. On no, X. what's Twitter? Uh, it's called pre-WGA, and I am happy to call myself a pre-WGA member. As am I. As am I. Okay. Big, big thanks to Mark Blutman for taking the time to share his insights, stories, and thoughts. It was a pleasure, Mark. And thank you to Story Summit for making this podcast possible. To meet other writers, turbocharge your craft, and learn about the industries writers care about, it really honestly does not get any better than the generous people at story summit please check them out now at storysummit.us and as always thanks for listening and until next time keep writing and never give up on finding your audience producer or publisher you'll likely hear a million no's but stick with it because all it takes is that one yes i've been your host brian landwehr this episode produced by myself and Bailey Patterson with the support of David Paul Kirkpatrick of Story Summit. I hope to be a writer myself someday. Original music by Kenton Edward.